0: out tonight. Uh, My name is Sammy. If you haven't met me yet, I'm the campus minister here with RUF, and I'm going in my seventh year. I went uh, went to USC back in the day, finished here in 2002, and um, have really, this has been the joy of my life to come back and do ministry here, believe it or not. Um, Hey, so if you've been with us, you know, our series has been, we're calling it Simply Jesus, and what we're doing is we're really looking at how all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is really not about us, regardless of what we've been told maybe growing up, but it really is about Jesus. And so if you're with us, we've looked at that. Uh, last week we looked at David and Goliath and how the message of David and Goliath isn't go be like David. The message of David and Goliath is we, that God sent a David. His name, the, greater, the true and greater David, his name is Jesus. And so tonight we're actually going to look at a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. This is a fascinating passage. I think one of my favorites in the Old Testament. It has everything to do with what we think of God and how wrong we can be. And how different it is when we actually encounter him. The real, living, breathing God who Scripture says is an all-consuming fire of holiness. Uh, Jonathan Edwards used to have this illustration where he would say this. He would say uh, the difference between assenting to knowledge about God and actually being in relationship and knowing God is like the difference of hearing your whole life that honey is sweet. And you see honey, you think, oh, that's sweet, and actually tasting that honey is sweet. And so in a way, we're looking at a passage where Isaiah for the first time begins to taste what God is like. So let's look at it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. You've got it in your handout. If you didn't get a handout, you can just follow uh, it on your, on your phone. Or if you have a, a Bible. The bigger the Bible, the better. Um, my guy Trey Weaver was telling me this. How did you say it, Trey? The bigger the Bible, the bigger the sinner. Something like that. Yeah. The bigger the Savior. Um, Isaiah 6. Here we go. In the year that King Isaiah died... Uh, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah talking, sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, angels, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive into this text together tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, we do we thank you for your word. We thank you that we know that uh, you speak to us through your word. We don't have to wonder whether or not you are mute, whether or not you are withdrawn, whether or not you are hidden to us, Lord, you have given us your word, and you, by your Spirit, still speak its eternal truth to us today. So, Lord, I pray that as we go back in time to this place, this experience that you gave Isaiah, uh, this moment where, that changed his life, this moment that changed everything, it turned him upside down. Lord, I pray that you would do the same thing by your spirit in our midst tonight, that you would bring us face to face with yourself, and that we would be both in awe of you, that we would be humbled before you, but that we would at the same time would be lifted up by the joy of your grace over us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. A good friend the other day, we were having a conversation just about books, talking kind of nerdy book conversation. He was talking about this book he was reading by Viktor Frankl. Maybe you've read it. Viktor Frankl wrote this famous book in the late 50s called The Meaning of Man and uh, something like that. He was a Holocaust survivor. This is what was interesting to me. This is what we were talking about. He's a Holocaust survivor, and he said he knew that man had lost his meaning when he was in those camps, experiencing unspeakable evil and suffering. He said one of the ways he knew that his Jewish brothers and sisters were, were, had given up and were gonna die the next day was they had these cigarettes. And the way that it worked in the camp was the Germans would give them, the Nazis would give them cigarettes as sort of uh, currency. And they could spend those cigarettes on like, things like food and drink for themselves and for their family. And so the best thing to do was obviously take the cigarettes and instead of, of you know, taking their comfort was to go spend them on something that was life-giving and life-sustaining. And he said, the way you knew, he said he was sure he knew a man was about to die the next day when he saw him smoking the last of his cigarettes. And we, I mean, there, there is sort of a, I mean, still we can say there's part of the attraction of smoking. Um, um, well, we don't have to get into like, I'm an occasional smoker. I enjoy it occasionally. Just put that out there. But part of it is the coolness of despair, right? But that's part of the sadness of it as well. Part of the sadness of it is. You know what Victor Franklin was saying is he knew that, that it was a sign in that moment in that time that basically they had given up hope that their hearts had lost hope and that their hearts had gone cold and you can imagine being in the face of that kind of evil and that kind of suffering and it's the same with us none of us have experienced something that incredibly evil and awful but in our own ways we are in touch with pain. And suffering and disappointment. Think about it like this. Our, in other words, our hearts can go cold too. We can give up too. Uh, think about it like this. you go through an incredibly difficult breakup with the person that you were sure you were gonna spend the rest of your lives with, been there? That was like the first three years of college for me. And your heart goes cold. Or think about it like this. You're, one of your best, deepest friends betrays you, Like they just leave you in the dust. And your heart is tempted to go cold. Think about it like this. College, maybe you had this idea of what college was going to be. It was going to be like you are going to be living the dream and you are not living any, no one's dream. You're living someone's nightmare, but not a dream. And your heart goes cold. So the question for tonight is what do you do when your heart goes cold? Because what I'm trying to get you to see is Isaiah comes into the temple. This is not his first time. He comes and he's going through the motions. This is going to become very clear that his heart is not exactly warmed. And own fire, so to speak, for the Lord. So what happens when your heart goes cold? Well, you need three things to happen to happen for Isaiah. First, you need a God fire. Second, you need a self fire. And then lastly, you need a gospel fire. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So first, you need a God fire. So this is not, like I just said, Isaiah's first time in the temple. But it is his first time encountering the living and breathing God who is an all-consuming fire of glory and holiness. It is his first time coming before the Lord, but it's not his first time In the temple. In the scene, you read it, it's a weird passage in some ways, because there's sort of as you read it, there's this kind of an earthquake and smoke and fire all over this temple. But the scene is here is God, the king, he's on his throne, his his robe is so massive it's filling the temple, and there are these angels, there are more than one, multitudes of angels wherever many could fit in this temple flying around. I don't mean like little chubby, cute hallmark angels. I mean like angels that are these fiery, powerful beings. And they're doing two things at the same time. On the one hand, they are shielding themselves from the radiance, the pure radiance of God's glory. And at the same time, they are shouting at the top of their lungs his praises. And Isaiah, it's an incredible scene that is that is, is crushing Isaiah in the most beautiful way. Have you ever been crushed by the holiness and glory of of God. And here's what I want you to see. My, 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 I'm going to call him my guy. He's not my guy, but my, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, has this helpful thing where he says, This is a moment for Isaiah where God moves from being a concept to being a reality. He moves from being this nice little important idea to being the central weighty reality that life is all about and worthy of our whole lives in obedience. Um, When God's a nice little concept, because this is true for us, there are only really two ways to approach God. One is as a nice little concept, and the other is as weighty reality. So when God's a nice little concept, here's the reality. He's worthy of part of my life. A little worship here, a little Bible reading there. A little prayer sprinkled in, a little RUF activities, kind of, you know, he's worthy of a little bit of my life, but he's not the central defining thing that all of my life and all of my heart and all of my ambitions and all of my desires and all of my dreams have to center around. And when God is an all consuming reality, like he becomes for Isaiah, then you see he's worthy. There's no part of my life that's off limits. He doesn't just want my nice little obedience sprinkled in, he wants my heart and he wants your heart. Uh, this is the way I was thinking about it. This is going to sound silly, I think, but I'm going to try it. Think about the, the the difference between concept and reality. Um, so, when we do these summer trips, my family and I I've got four kids. It's about two kids too many for me. One of my best friends says, "You're a two kid dad with four kids. Your wife is a six kid mom with four kids, and you just met in the middle, which is really true." So we got four kids. We load up in our minivan we drive across the country. So three years ago, in we went to California. Uh, two years ago, we went to Maine. This summer, we're like, where are we gonna go? We're like, let's go to Canada. That sounds amazing. So we like spent a week in Michigan first and then went to Canada and, but on the way, one of the things that I love to do for the last several years is one of the things that's really, one of the concepts that's really important to me is visiting as many major league baseball parks as I can. Like I'm, I'm you might not guess me for a sports guy, But I kind of am. And so I love just visiting uh, as many that we can fit and I can afford to take all my kids to, basically. And so this year we stopped in Cincinnati and went to a Reds game. It was way hot and, you know, it was still awesome. And then when we made it, Toronto went to a Blue Jays game and that was awesome. And so this is what I was thinking about, the difference between concept and reality. So for me, this is a concept. Like it's a cool educational experience for me and my family to go to a major city and go to a ballpark and just experience what it's like. But a concept is something, like, it would be weird if I, like, my, my entire existence became about that, right? Like, if I just oriented my whole life around visiting every single major league stadium in the country. Number one, it would be weird. Well, let's just say it's not realistic because I don't have the money for that. Number two, it would be weird because my family would be like, hey, where's dad? And he's just out visiting the ballparks around the country. I mean, it's just not, a, it's not, it's a nice concept that I can squeeze when I can. But the reality is what the reality is money. Like part of why that part of the reality of that situation is you know money affects the ability to do or to not do that. Concept versus reality. Most of us, you know, have can relate to Isaiah where God was a, at some point in our lives like just a concept. We'd heard about him. Maybe our parents really maybe he was a reality in our parents' lives, but he wasn't for us. And the question for you is: God moved? Have you met the God of Isaiah? Has he moved from being this nice little concept that gets part of your life? Two, that God is this central defining reality of you and your life and your dreams and your aspirations and your desires. And this is what you want to what you see is God's not just after your little bit of Bible reading and your little bit of RUF or whatever other ministry you're part of. God is after your heart, passionately, that you might realize that He is the defining reality for you. So first there's gotta be a Godfire. We God has to, in other words, God has to burn, He has to set fire. Himself as a concept and bring new way for himself as a reality, the defining reality of your life. But then, second, there's got to be another thing that happens. There has to be not just a Godfire, there has to be a self fire. So, this is where the, book, the passage gets interesting. So, this is the first time in Isaiah 6 that the main character that the book is named after, Isaiah, speaks. And this is interesting to me. He, his first words in the entire book are not, I think, what we thought they would be. You know, they're not a nice little witty, funny one-liner to sort of break the ice of what this experience here. And neither are they this profound, quotable little, you know, nugget of wisdom. It's neither of those things. Instead, his first words are pronouncing a curse upon himself. He He meets the real biblical God, the living, breathing God of the Bible. And his first words as he looks upon himself are, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with a people of unclean lips. He's cursing himself. This is interesting. This means part of how you know, the litmus test, part of how you know you're in relationship with the, with the living God is you kind of hate yourself. Now, we, listen, I love, I love psychology. That was my major. I could do that all day. You sit across a coffee table with me, I'm going to be psychoanalyzing you as fast as I can. I'm not going to tell you that because that would be weird. But I'm definitely doing it. And then when I meet your parents, oh man, it comes home beautiful, beautiful ways. That might sound scary. I'm not that scary. I would love to grab, I would love to grab coffee with you. I love psychology. I can talk it all day long. But I, I don't mean like, oh, you want to you really hurt yourself. What I mean is when you see yourself as you are in comparison to God, there is a moment of what we talked about in Genesis 3, nakedness. They realized they were naked. There is a moment of, I am not as I should be. There is a moment of, of shame that I have not praised. Part of what Isaiah is doing is he's seeing these angels do what he should be doing, centering their whole lives and existence around praising and serving God. But his curse is intense and interesting for two reasons. His curse where he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, is fascinating for two reasons. Here's the first. The first is you've got to understand the background of, of Isaiah. So a little bit later in the book, in Isaiah 29, God is going to say, this is, this is my problem with you, my people. My problem with you, he literally says this, that you draw near to me with your mouth and you honor me with your lips, but your heart all the while is far from me. And this is my problem. And Isaiah is saying, that's me. Isaiah is actually a, a he's, he's a, a servant of the temple. He's a, pa- he's a pastor. And Isaiah is saying, I am part of this problem. In, in other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I've preached sermons. He's saying, I've led worship. I've sang hymns, I've made sacrifices, I've fellowshiped with God's people, all the while my heart was cold to the living God. My heart, in other words, he's saying, I was going through the motions, but my heart was unmoved. I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, but my heart was disengaged. That's the first thing that it means, and he says I'm a man of unclean lips. And the second thing that's fascinating is most likely what we know of Isaiah. He was A gifted, gifted guy. He was was kind of an educational, academic elite from this very wealthy family who, from what we know about him, was an incredibly gifted speaker. And what this means, the other part that he's saying, is not just that I've led God's people through the motions while my heart was far from I've honored God with my lips while my heart was far from Him. The other thing he's saying is even the way I used my lips was not about you, God. It was about me. I used my gifts not to further your honor and glory, I use my gifts for myself to serve my glory and myself. There's this, uh, another one I hear is Sinclair Ferguson. i never, never forget, he preached this sermon at First Pres, actually, years ago on John 3.30, where John the Baptist has that famous line where he says, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. And Ferguson, in this beautiful way, he just had this simple question, but it's always stuck with me, especially as I think about my own Christian life. He said this, who do you want people to love? Who do you want people to love you or Jesus? And I remember in my heart sitting in that pew and being like both. <laughs> Is both an option. Cause that's what I would like. Please. I would like people to love me and Jesus. Can we do that? God, can we just make that deal where people love me and love Jesus? And it's like, no, who do you want people to love you or Jesus? This is the way Tim Keller says it that I love. It's in your handout if you have it. He says this. He says, imagine this illustration that I love. He says, imagine you have some family money and you get married. And your spouse learns that they can't get their hands on the family money. And then they leave you. How do you feel? Violated. Used. A means to an end. Not loved for who they are in themselves. And he says, do you not think God feels like that? God didn't come through for me. In other words, I wanted God for blessings, not himself. You married God for his money. He was an object. The seraphs are not doing this on a, a cost-benefit analysis. They are serving him because it is his due for his beauty. His holiness is not useful. It is beautiful. And this is fascinating. He goes in and say this. God's power is useful to me. Like literally, I had a moment this summer, it's one of the most it's one of the most amazing thing that's ever happened where our minivan broke down. Minimans, let me, just, let me just tell you the hard truth right now. Minimans are a hard pill to swallow on the outside. I'm just going to be real with you. You never feel cool stepping into a minivan. In fact, you step into that. But when you step into that minivan and you experience the luxury and the space and the, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you homeschool kids know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Not just everybody. A lot of people have minivans. Um, it's amazing. I don't know. Oh, I know where I was going with that. <laughs> God's power. God's power. We uh, literally, Minivan, it's a crazy story breakdown. And it's not, this is going to sound overly spiritual. I don't want it to. I'm going to Presbyterian that day in Charleston. This happens. Alyssa calls me. We found out it's totaled. What we're going to get for it, we get, we're not going we can't buy like a Minivan that feels safe for my kids. So we're like crying about it. I get to Presbyterian. I share my little RF report. And then just as a, like a throwaway, I say, hey, here's one way you could pray for us. This is what happened. Our money man's total. And I drive home thinking literally nothing else of it. Get a call. It's a guy that was at presbytery, and He's like, hey, I think we can help you. And I'm like, all right. I'll take your beat up Honda Odyssey. He's like, nope. I mean, I didn't say that in my heart. Cynically, I would say that. <laughs> nope almost a brand new minivan with like very few miles he was like we just want to give it to you i'm literally i pull over i'm like i think i'm in like a hardy's parking lot <laughs> i'm not eating there because that would be gross i'm just sitting here and just cr- crying i mean it's because there are moments like that but they're not very they're few and far between for me where it just seems evident the way god works and his prominence is beautiful and amazing And that's not the the only way he works. In fact, it doesn't seem in my life often the way he works. But it was an experience of his power that was useful to me. I got a new minivan out of God's power. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Second, God's wisdom is useful to me. It makes me feel good when I feel smarter or wiser than the people around me. God's mercy is even useful to me. Right? It makes me feel good to know that my sins are forgiven. But how is God's holiness useful to me? It's not. And the question from my heart and your heart is, am I in it for God's money or am I in it for God? Am I in it to get God to do something for me or give me something like fun or friends? You will know, freshman year, you don't can I just say this to you? I'm glad that you're here. You know, it's hard for you. It's not fun. And you're in it for fun. And I want to give you Jesus. And Jesus is more fun than fun. But, it, you know, it's hard because it's not fun. And we're, we're trying. We're going to have a lot, ton of fun at fall conference. But part, part of what I'm asking, part of what I'm saying, to, God is asking our hearts: so is are you in it for me? Are you in this thing for me or to get something out of me? Um, there's a, when I was at Carolina, I had to take this music class. Did you still have to take music appreciation? Is that still thing? Okay. Anyways, it was terrible. I, was, I mean, I love music, but that was really hard. But one of the assignments was we had to watch a movie about Mozart called Amadeus. And I'm not a huge classical guy. I can appreciate it a little bit. My wife is a bigger fan. But Amadeus was a fascinating movie because it's really not about Mozart. It's actually about Mozart's uh, less-known counterpart, Salieri. Have you ever heard of Salieri? Most of us haven't. But Salieri, the whole movie is about his growing. He's older than Mozart. At the time before Mozart's climb, he's more successful. He's more trained. He's more everything. And then Mozart just sort of fumbles, parties his way into becoming this overnight success of a composer. And you watch Salieri grow and grow and grow and grow in cynicism and anger and bitterness to the point where he tries to kill Mozart at the end. And he ends up nearly dead himself. But there's a scene in the movie where Salieri is talking about he was a church-going person. He was a religious person. He talks about being in worship with his dad. He said, my dad would be worshiping God. And here's what he says. He says, while my father prayed earnestly to God, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. And in return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility, every hour of my life. Amen. And he was in it for God's money. And are you in it for God? Or are you in it for God's money? And Isaiah is saying, woe to me. I was in it for your money. This is why, part of why my heart's been cold to you. Is I don't I don't really want you, I just want what you can do for me. You see that? And he has this, he has this self fire right. This way where he's saying even my good. This is how you know you're growing as a Christian. You realize that even in the good things you do for Jesus, it's not really about Jesus. It's about yourself. And in that sense, it's worth. You're worthy of when you when you're in the presence of God. It's, it's worth saying woe to me. I've been in this for me. It's not about Jesus. It's about me. And God sets that on fire and gives Isaiah a new heart. And then, lastly, a gospel fire. This is where the, the passage gets really beautiful. Because something even crazier happens. The scene is already crazy, because something even crazier happens. As, as soon as Isaiah says that, as soon as he says, "Woe to me! I'm a man of unclean lips," an angel breaks rank from the court, swirling chorus and he goes over to this altar. And if you read it, he picks up—he carefully picks up a, a burning coal and he picks it up with tongs, which is interesting. And then he takes it and he touches the very place where Isaiah just confessed his sin. He touches his lips. And then you see what he says. He says, your sin is atoned for and your guilt is taken away. And that's the moment where Isaiah says, Lord, you know, you're looking for a, a preacher? Go send me. I'm ready. I'm finally ready. But what's fascinating is what is the angel doing? The angel is actually preaching the gospel. And he's not just preaching the gospel to Isaiah. He's actually enacting the gospel right in front of Isaiah. Really own Isaiah, so to speak. He is Beautifully interacting and preaching the gospel to him. What's fascinating is he's not using tongs. This is one of the things that was brought up for me. He's not using tongs because, they're, because the burning coal is hot. That's what I think we normally think. think this, this would have been a burning being. Why does he use tongs? He used tongs because this is a sacred and holy thing that he's doing. This is a sacred and holy altar. And this is Isaiah realizing that this is the altar... That is the reality. That is the reality of the altars he's been sacrificing day in and day out for God's people. This is the eternal altar. And you and I know it as the altar of Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who came and makes the once and for all sacrifice. And so he, because he does that, Isaiah and you and I could be forgiven. But before we get there, I want, you to sh- I want to show you something about Jesus. So there's a scene that's eerily similar crazily similar to Isaiah 6 in the Gospel of Mark, it's in Mark 9. And the scene is Jesus has taken his good friends, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountainside with him. And as they're there, this crazy thing happens where for a moment, reality breaks through in the same way it does in Isaiah 6. And they see Jesus, and Jesus is in this radiant white robe. And Mark's details beautifully says. It's so white that no one on earth could possibly bleach it that white. It was just pure the radiance of his holiness and glory, and then it's a weird scene because Moses, Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, and it's so weird. But what the reality is so weighty. Peter says, "Lord, let's set up tents. We're here. We've made it to new heavens and new earth. Let's go. Set up tents. We're living here forever. This is awesome." And the scene is is so similar yet so different. Why? Because Jesus, he's not just the holiness of God on full display. Like when the Bible says, be ye holy as I am holy, guess what it's saying? Be like Jesus. Because Jesus is the fullness of, of all that God is, his holiness included. But what we see is, is that yes, God is this transcendent holiness. And yet that direction of holiness is not to destroy you. It could, Isaiah literally thinks, this is what I was thinking about today. Isaiah, in this, if we could put ourselves in his place, he really does think he's about to die. The re- Part of why he pronounces the curse on him is he realizes, this is it. Like, I have met God. It is not what I thought it was going to be. I am not in a place to say anything. And he really does think, I think, that he's going to die. And instead, what does God do? Instead of, he doesn't kill him. Instead, he meets the place right where he's confessed his sin. You need to hear this tonight. There are things that your heart coming in, part of why it's cold is you have cherished things that God says are not good. And part of what he's doing tonight is saying, the reason I'm asking you to confess this is not so that I can destroy you. Yes, my holiness won't allow it. That's part of why you feel convicted. But the reason is the moment we confess our sin to God, First John says he meets that he is eager and ready to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And so we can go to him. this is what we see Jesus is the holiness of God, not just in full display. But it's an all consuming, he's showing that the all consuming, all encompassing holiness of God, the fire that it is, and then it's not meant to harm you, it's meant to heal you. Because he does go, the Holy One of God, to make the sacrifice for you and me, who are men and women of unclean lips. And the question again is have you met that guy? Who was both, here, here's what happens. So when you grow up in a church, it's all holiness, it's all transcendence. And you have no idea that there is grace. So you don't confess your sins because you're terrified. Because you don't think that God's going to meet them with forgiveness and mercy. Others of you have grown up in churches where it's all grace, all mercy, and God's sort of just like a casual buddy. And you're like, fear of God, what does that mean? And you miss actually the weight of your sin. You miss actually the weight of God's holiness. And you miss, therefore, what Jesus did for you. Because you don't understand why you would even need to be forgiven. And we hope Jesus is showing us we hold both intention the whole, the absolute terrifying holiness of God and the absolute heart melting grace of God. Close with us. My, my son, he's not really a reader. He's more likes to be outdoors, likes to play sports, which is cool. I try to keep up with it, but he's gotten really into Harry Potter. And so at night. Uh, when I when I get a chance and he gets a chance, well, he'll read Harry Potter to me. And so last night he was reading, and we got to my very favorite scene. You've probably heard me say this before. You've been around a while. Uh, my very favorite scene in Harry Potter is when Dobby meets Harry for the first time. Dobby's my Dobby's my guy. Dobby's my character. <laughs> that might be weird. I don't know. <laughs> he just says. And, uh, but that scene, I'll, the scene, the line always stays with me. I think about it a lot actually. When Dobby meets Harry, and he has no idea. He's heard a lot about Harry. Harry's a concept. Right? He's heard a lot about this person that faced and lived after his encounter with Voldemort. Do you know the scene, though, where he's in Harry's bedroom, meets him for the first time, and Harry talks about what he's going to do for Dobby? And Dobby has that moment, that great line where he says, Dobby has heard of your greatness, but of your goodness, sir, Dobby never knew. And can I just say to you, that's a lot of you here. Maybe you've heard of God's greatness but do you know of his goodness? Maybe it's the opposite. Have you heard of God's goodness, but do you know of his greatness? And Isaiah is saying, come meet the living God who is both great and good. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this place, continue to wrestle with our hearts, that you would show us that your heart is passionate toward us. And that, uh, Lord, I pray that that would take uh, my cold heart and my friends' cold hearts if they are cold tonight, and that you would begin to uh, warm them and set them on fire by the gospel. We pray these things for Christ in our name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't stand in singulars, Jesus.